0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing.
1: This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the LN Institute for Artificial Intelligence.
0: All right, today our guest is Sam Wiseman, who is a final year PhD student in computer science at Harvard, advised by Stuart Schieber and Sasha Rush. And today we're going to be talking about a paper he published at EMNLP 2016 titled Sequence-to-Sequence Learning as Beam Search Optimization. Sam, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is a little bit of an older paper, but I've been doing a lot of thinking about sequence to sequence models these days. And so I was curious to talk to you about this work because it's pretty interesting. So can you tell us what the setting is for the, what this paper is talking about?
2: Yeah, so I guess this paper tackles um, the standard, or I guess maybe what was the standard seek to seek setup in 2016. And so I guess the way that typically worked was you would have some source information you wanted to condition on, maybe like um, a sentence in French that you wanted to translate into English. And the way you would translate that into English is you can encode your source French sentence and then sort of translate word by word um, into English. And in particular, I guess the way these models were trained was uh, you would train the seek-to-seek model to maximize probability of each word in the target sequence um, sort of conditioned on the source French sentence and all the previous gold or true words uh, that preceded the current token. And so this is sort of the standard C2C setup. Uh, and I guess there are some perceived issues with, the, issues with this, which I can, I guess, talk about. Yeah. So, so this is
0: maximizing the likelihood of your data, right, which is like the very standard thing to do in machine learning, obvious thing to do first. But as you say, there, there are some issues with it when you have sequences that you're opening. So what are some of those issues?
2: The thing to keep in mind is, you know, at test time, well, let's see. So at training time, you know, you're training this like a conditional language model. You you kind of know all the previous tokens Um, at test time. You can't do this, though, because you have to produce an entire sequence, right? You have to produce an entire translation. So it's sort of structured prediction. Uh, And so I guess the first problem that people have noted, and this is sometimes called uh, exposure bias, is that if you're always training by conditioning on the true or gold history of tokens, then that's very different than test time. And in particular, the model isn't exposed to any bad predictions it might make. So training time always sort of gets the gold true distribution. At test time, it gets this weird model distribution. And so there's a mismatch. So that is sort of exposure bias. I guess another training issue is that the negative log likelihood style loss that you train with is sort of token level. Whereas at test time, people, Typically, assume you want something that's more sequence level and certainly at evaluation time for machine translation, we use blue, um, which doesn't decompose over into individual tokens. So There's the sense maybe that we we weren't training with the kind of uh, sequence level losses that we might want to. And then I guess the last issue is more a model issue than a training issue. And that seek to seek models are typically locally normalized. So the probability of a token at a time step is normalized for that time step. um, And that can lead to label bias issues.
0: Can we explore this exposure bias a little bit? So just to be super clear, the only reason this matters is because you're using previous outputs as part of your model for determining the next output. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So like if, if I had an HMM or part for or was just doing part of speech tagging and, and my model didn't for some reason incorporate the previous output, then there is no exposure bias. It's because I have a conditional probability distribution that's conditioned on something at test time that I've, that I've never seen before. And so my model is just in a space that it's never explored. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right. And I mean, and also the point is, you know, for HMMs, you can sort of do exact inference. So there's never ever going to be a problem of finding the argmax labeling or whatever. Um, and so you sort of don't run into this issue at all. But yes, if you're, but if you sort of do have a prediction, strategy where future predictions depend on previous ones, but you haven't kind of seen anything like that during training, then yeah, you're going to have this, this mismatch.
0: And what about label bias? What exactly is that? How does that work?
2: Right. So label bias, I think, happens kind of when these substructure intermediate predictions are locally normalized rather than sort of having a score for the entire structure being normalized over all the structures you're considering. And I guess intuitively what happens is because you're locally normalizing each decision, you don't get to penalize a really bad decision as much as you might want to. So if you predict a really, really bad word, you might want to give that entire sequence just zero, or like negative infinity score or something like that. Um, but you can't do that if each, say, word prediction is locally normalized. Because once you make your super bad word prediction, all the words after that, you know, their probability sums to one. And so you can't really penalize the entire sequence as much as you want to. Um, and so that can lead to a few issues. I think maybe the most relevant one is it can be hard to Recover from bad predictions because you don't get to penalize the bad prediction you made as much as you want to.
0: Cool. So, what are previous ways to solve these kinds of
2: problems? Right. So, I mean, so I guess CRFs, which are sort of globally globally normalized, or globally normalized models are sort of the famous way of addressing label bias. When it comes to exposure bias, you know, there's all sorts of work like CERN where you sort of or DAGGER where you sort of incorporate uh, model predictions. Uh, into your training regime. And Lazo, which is similar but different, um, is also a way because Lazo, which is sort of what this work I guess I'm talking about is based on um, involves sort of training, um, sorry, searching during train time. And because the model sort of the loss is defined with respect to the output of search, you're sort of considering what the model thinks as you train, as opposed to always conditioning on the gold history.
0: And Lazo, for people who aren't familiar with it, is learning as search optimization. some work by Hal Delmay back 12 or 13 years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So then, what's your solution to this problem? Well, you say this is, you introduce something called beam search optimization. What is that?
2: Yeah, so I think, I think it's fine to think of beam search optimization as a way of slightly modifying Lazo, learning a search optimization for uh, seek-to-seek type models. At a high level, the way this works is we define a loss in terms of a beam search procedure that we run at training time. Uh, And in particular, what this loss does is um, it penalizes the case where the gold prefix of length T, let's say, as you're searching, um, isn't scored higher by a margin than the last prefix of length T on the beam. Um, So that's sort of your loss. And what's interesting here is so now we also get this sort of prefix level loss. And so we can um, score, we can sort of scale the losses by things that look at prefixes rather by tokens. And so that's a way of getting sequence level losses in there. Um, And then the last ingredient is, um, we sort of slightly modify the scores of these prefixes so that they're not locally normalized. And so in theory, this should address all the things that I mentioned. So you don't have exposure bias because you're searching during training time, Um, you can get Prefix level losses because that's what uh, this loss sort of looks at. And you don't have label bias because we don't have these locally normalized scores. Instead, they're sort of globally normalized.
1: So, a question. This loss structure makes sure that uh, the correct uh, sequence is, the correct output sequence is in, the, is in the beam, but it doesn't make sure that it's at the top of the beam. So, do uh, you need to augment this loss with uh, the traditional loss so that you can also uh, rank the correct one higher than the other ones in the beam?
2: Right. So it doesn't make sure that the gold prefix is higher, is the highest except at the end. So at the end, we sort of modify and, <clears throat> excuse me, and make sure that the correct full length prefix is at the top. So the loss sort of changes for the last time step. But certainly other losses are kind of necessary to get this to work. And in particular, we have to do pre-training to get any of this to work. Um, and so we pre-train with uh, just the standard token level negative log likelihood.
1: Could you elaborate a little more on uh, what happens at the last step in order to make sure that the correct one is ranked higher or you penalize the model when it doesn't
2: do that? Right, yeah. So at the, at the last step, you have a similar margin-based loss, except at this time, at the last time step, you're saying you want the gold prefix to be scored higher than you know the next highest thing on the beam. You want it to be the first thing on the beam, um, whereas at all the time steps preceding the final one, you just want to make sure that the prefix of that length is you know, higher by margin than the final thing on the beam. So you're essentially just changing the index that you're looking at for a violation. that makes sense? Yep.
0: So let's say I had a beam size of one. So here I'm penalizing the model any time that the correct prediction is not my top prediction on the beam.
2: So I think that, I would consider that a beam size of two. So, so what you'd be, so right, if you want, if you want the gold prefix to be number one, you want it to be scored higher than the second prefix on the beam. So yeah, so I think I think the lowest you kind of go is is two. I see. Um, and that's why in the paper everything <laughs> bottoms out at two.
0: Okay, I I missed that particular notation choice as I was reading the paper. That's good to know. So if a beam size of two, then is this really different from having a hinge loss at every time step on the gold uh sequence?
2: It's only different in that right. Okay, so I guess right. So if you had a hinge loss where you didn't violate. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's the same. Okay. Interesting. That's good to know. It's actually worth noting. I don't know if this is interesting to anyone, but um, if you try to train a regular seek-to-seek model with just a hinge loss, so like you replace your um, negative log likelihood type loss with just a multi-class hinge, that actually you also kind of need to pre-train for. And it's really hard to train that from scratch. So I think, yeah, so pre-training is actually quite crucial. And I think a lot of these other models that um, are doing things like this also typically need to pre-train.
0: Why do you think that is? Any, any intuitions for why we need this pre-training?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think if you think about sort of the gradients of these losses, when you have kind of these true multi-class hinge ones, the gradients are very sparse. You only get a signal for, you know, the gold thing and for the violating thing. Whereas, you know, if you, if you do a standard negative block likelihood thing, you get some information for each word, right? So not only are you pushing up the true gold thing, you're pushing down everything else. Uh, and that's like notably not true for these margin losses. And so I think to train these from scratch, it's just very hard. There's like a ton of words in your vocabulary. You don't learn that much at each time step.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. There was one point in your paper where you say you contrast between LASO the update, LASO updates and early updates, where basically, as I understand the difference, LASO says, if, if I have a search violation, which means that I've got a particular time step, I predict something, uh, sorry, my gold label falls off the, the beam, the, the set of things that I'm currently considering. Then I add something to my loss, and then I reset the search to the gold sequence and keep going from there. Whereas early update says, just stop and go to the next training example. So why, do, why, why is the first one better than the second one?
2: So I think two reasons. Well, okay, one is just empirical. I think I couldn't get early update to train very well. I'm not actually sure why. The second answer is, and I think you mentioned this earlier, um, that it's faster, right? So once you encode the source, that's sort of fixed, and then you kind of can keep searching on the target side. Whereas if you did early update, you'd have to sort of re-encode the source for each new thing. So it should be faster, but it also seems to just kind of work empirically better.
0: I expected the... The computational efficiency, I'm a little bit surprised by the statistical efficiency also.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, so, you know, I tried with pre-training and all these things to get it to work, and I couldn't, but I, but I don't have a strong, I'm not actually sure why. Interesting.
0: My last question on this method, you uh, give some discussion in the paper about the complexity of computing gradients. Maybe I'm spoiled, but these days it feels like we never have to think about that anymore. But you uh, um, go to a bit of length to describe why the way that you do this is computationally efficient. Is that just because it was a few years ago and and things like PyTorch weren't around? Or does this still matter if you write this in PyTorch?
2: The main reason I was thinking about it was because PyTorch was not yet around. I think it is true that you can basically just implement the forward search in PyTorch and it will be correct. And I think people have done this. Um, I think one thing, though, that we mention in the paper is that you can get your backward pass to sort of be independent of K, that is independent of the size of the beam. And so my guess is if you implemented the standard search, the sort of standard forward search procedure, it wouldn't do that because you're probably like batching all your beam search or whatever. And I don't think it knows that only two, you know, subsequences at each uh, time are kind of participating in the loss. So I think it would be a little bit slower, but it's probably, honestly, it's probably fine. (laughs) And I think um, people are doing that.
0: I said at the beginning, I'm working on some structured prediction problems. And I've implemented a step-by-step decoder that you can train with different algorithms, including this one, if you want. If you have a batch and you just select a few rows from that batch, Mm -hmm. PyTorch will be efficient enough in the backward pass that it will... Actually, I'm actually not sure that's right. So I was was going to say that PyTorch should be efficient enough in the backward pass to only include the things in the gradient that uh, matter. Except actually, it probably just keeps the index and still has the whole array. And so maybe I'm wrong. And so... Naive implementation in PyTorx that's batched would still be computationally inefficient. But that's interesting, but probably yeah, a, little, a little off topic.
1: As far as computing the grade is concerned, uh, isn't it the case that we, regardless of the size of K, we only, after the search has been finished and we know what are the K best uh, that we're interested in, we pick one of them, and that one is the only one that contributes to the loss function?
2: Well, so there isn't just one because you I guess because you reset the beam, but there are only sort of ever two for any subsequence. So one thing you could do is you could sort of just do beam search the entire time until you get some violating sequence and then your update could just be, you know, score the gold thing high and score the thing I found with beam search low. And that's sort of neither lazyo nor is it early update. It's sort of just like approximate the arc max with beam search. And I think the reason people don't like to do that is because you sort of feel like, well, if I'm going to be searching, I might as well kind of learn to search better. And so let me get updates kind of each time I make a mistake rather than just straight up approximate the arc max with, with the beam search that I'm not sort of correcting as I go. But yeah, if you did that, then I think that would be, that would also be relatively fast, yeah.
1: And uh, how about the loss, uh, the delta, the mistake-specific cost function? Could you elaborate a little bit on how to design this for the various problems?
2: Yeah, I mean, right, so... It's far from obvious to me that I found a super good one. Um, I mean, I think for things like machine translation, it's natural to think that you know, if your violating hypothesis has like a really, really bad blue, then you should penalize that more. And so in the paper, we use like one minus some smooth sentence level blue to kind of scale that. So that is to say, if it has a very, very low blue, then you kind of get a higher scaling of that loss. And if it doesn't, then, uh, then you don't. But I think, yeah, I think it's very problem specific. And I think also because this is sort of a margin-based method where you're literally just scaling the loss. You have to worry and kind of make sure that you're not, you don't make it huge or anything like that. So yeah, there is a bit of tuning that you need to do to kind of get any of this to work, I think.
1: Uh, one more question about, uh, so you mentioned pre-training uh, several times before the, as a necessary uh, procedure, right? Uh, how do you do that pre-training? You use the, the, the
0: uh, as as your loss function
2: yeah, absolutely. It's just, so just standard seek to seek token level, and negative luck likelihood. Yeah.
0: Train it till convergence and then restart
2: with this? I think that's basically right. I think I remember, like, I think people have asked me, like, oh, maybe you don't want to train it too much because then it, but I think that's actually not true. I think you kind of want to train it pretty much till so it converges. But I, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't have like a, a number of ethics or whatever to give you. Um, I think you do. I, and, I, and certainly doing the experiments, I did try a few of them. A little a few epochs before convergence and after, and I think you do kind of have to mess with this. But I think the general rule of thumb is pretty much till convergence.
0: Well, uh, I like like a lot of things in deep learning these days. Your your um, hesitation there on what exactly to do scares me. <laughs> Just um, the, these things are too. so fiddly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> with respect to the size of k, how does it affect the performance? I guess I'm I'm curious to know uh, the answer both with uh, the proposed method, the VSO method, and without.
2: Yeah, so I guess uh, in the paper, there are a couple of comparisons. And in particular, we compare, uh, I guess, sort of training with different beam sizes and then testing with them. So one of the, I guess, problems we consider in the paper is this word ordering task where you try to map from a shuffled sentence to the correctly ordered sentence. And so there we sort of have a grid where you train with different beam sizes and then test with different beam sizes. So I think it's like 2, 6, 11 by 2, 6, 11, which correspond to you know, 1, 5, and 10. <laughs> I think for those tasks, what you typically see is, you know, you do the best when you evaluate with a beam that is the same as you trained with. I think the notable pattern in the paper is if you train with uh, a relatively large beam and then you evaluate greedily, typically do pretty badly. Um, and so this, so this was true anyway for word ordering and dependency parsing, it's sort of less true for machine translation. So I guess there the intuition is, if you train with a big beam, then your model doesn't have to be super confident early on. But then if at test time you use like a very small beam, you're basically greedy, then you, you you end up throwing things out kind of too early.
1: And in terms of the runtime performance?
2: There's some numbers in the paper with, I guess, a very old GPU. I think we decided that it was roughly three times slower to do these forward and backward passes. And then after that, it sort of scales sublinearly with the beam. I mean, so so the beam search happens, sort of happens all in batch. And so it's not quite as bad as K times worse. But you know, in theory, it's gonna be K times worse to train this way.
0: And any other highlights you wanna mention from the results in the paper?
2: I mean, so the thing that I think is really exciting is this sort of constrained training aspect of, it, of, the, um, of the work. So you know, uh, with standard seek to seek you sort of always assume <clears throat> the gold is the history. And then I guess you can imagine things where you search, but there are no real constraints on your search. But another thing you can do is you can sort of have this middle ground where you're training in this constrained way where, you know, maybe I'm only considering sequences that represent valid dependency parses or valid permutations of my input sequence if I'm doing word ordering. Um, And so that's sort of a fun thing. And if you look at the results, that typically tends to help. So that's sort of a cool thing that you can kind of do here.
0: Yeah, that's really related to stuff that I'm working on. In fact, it's exactly that problem. There have been a number of people recently that have, Published papers showing that this is really helpful for semantic parsing, where out, your output is a logical form. So it's part of a formal language that, are, that have grammar constraints on what can show up where, even more so than dependency parsing. And it's pretty clear at this point that you really want some kind of constrained decoding uh, so that you're only considering valid actions or valid outputs at any, any particular time So uh, I guess related to that, um, this work is now a couple of years old. What's come since? What have you been working on? Is there any any interesting follow-on to this work that you want to point out?
2: So I actually, I've moved mostly to generation. uh, And I actually think that, I mean, so I think what a lot of the results in this area have shown is that for standard generation problems like machine translation and summarization, with tons and tons of data and some tricks, you don't really need to do fancy things like this. And I think, and also there's been some other work, I think maybe you're gonna have these guys on your show, I think Sergei Adunov and and Myle Ott um, have done some really awesome recent work showing basically that there are a bunch of ways to kind of get the benefits of structured learning, but it's not clear that's super necessary uh, if you have tons of data. Um, so yeah, so I think that for, for actual generation, it's not obvious to me this is like the correct thing to do. Um, I think if you have less data, so if you're doing maybe low, low resource machine translation or something like this, and maybe exposure bias really is an issue, this would make sense. Um, but my guess is that, you know, this is sort of going to be useful for tasks where maybe there are constraints, where maybe there's some combinatorial structure, and so search really helps you. I'm not sure I know exactly what those are, maybe some sort of structured information extraction or something like that. But yeah, I would say for, for, <laughs> for MT, I think it's clear that you can do super, super well by not worrying about most of this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me that low resource in MT is like, what, 100,000 examples? And the problems that I work on have like several thousand examples, maybe 10,000 if you're lucky.
2: I think Laureus is a little bit smarter than that, but but yeah. I mean, the rule of thumb I've heard is you need at least like 20,000 examples to kind of get NMT to kind of work at all.
0: I mean,
1: generation is harder than predicting, analyzing. Uh, I think there is an argument to be made about uh, how many examples you need for training as a function of uh, the possible choices.
0: Yeah, the size of the output space. Yeah. And that's fair. Um, semantic parsing typical data sets have on the order of a thousand. I don't really know of any that have more than like ten thousand, or on the order of ten thousand. Uh, and the output is a sequence, it, like it's it's a form. It's, it's language generation. It's just a very constrained language, and so having the, the constraints on that language really helps. So you can get by with a whole lot less data. So yeah, you're you're right. It definitely does. Like you can prove that the amount of data that you need scales with the size of the output space, right?
2: Cool. Any last thoughts
0: before we conclude?
2: Not not any interesting ones, but but thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, it was nice talking. This was an interesting discussion. You too. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you.